following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 8th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. The season of Lent became, in a redeemed manner amongst Protestant churches, it became a, a time and a means by which the church would prepare people for baptism. It's the season leading up to Easter Sunday. And as that grew steadily, but in a small way in the Protestant church, it, it became a season as well when churches together would symbolically join Jesus in his wilderness temptations as he would prepare for the ministry that would take him to the cross. So there are some here uh, in this church who who will follow a Lenten tradition of fasting throughout the week and, and maybe even feasting on Sunday as the historic church may have done. And for those who do it, you are reminded in this season you don't do it for the sake of self-denial. You do it because you are emptying yourself of lesser things only to be filled with greater things. It's a season of examination and confession and repentance and preparation for a great celebration on Easter Sunday. And in the hands of a redeemed church, in the hands of a gospel-centered, grace-loving Christian, Lent itself actually becomes about the gospel. There are others here who grew up in Catholic or high church traditions for whom the idea of Lent is something that their conscience does not allow them to actually participate in. Yes and amen. It is why we do not have an official Lenten tradition here that we ask everybody to do. It is a matter of conscience. But either way, I think it's fair to say wherever you fall in considering this season or this habit or this practice of Lent, there's hardly too much repentance and hardly too much fasting going on in the church today. If anything, I think it's fair to say there's probably too much self-righteousness you and I, even in considering something like the habit or the practice of Lent, being for or against it, it, it can feed that self-righteousness that tries to take root in our heart. More important than these practices themselves, more important than the actual fasting, more important than the actual feasting is the heart behind why some do it. So, whether Lent is something you and your family or your friends choose to observe through fasting and repentance and feasting or whether it's something that you and your conscience cannot observe. Let's at least together agree to lay down for this season any, any hint or sense of superiority that might rise up in our hearts as we observe brothers and sisters, family members doing or not doing something that we see as an important or, or cherished tool or something we see as a means of bondage. Let's at least lay the superiority down for the sake of the gospel. As we choose together to lay down that thing in our heart that would want to exalt our opinions or ourselves over something or someone else in a manner of conscience and observation. We're also together going to lay something down for the season. We're going to lay down the journey we've been on going through the book of 1 Samuel for the, the season that Lent would occupy, which is really the month of March. It's really just these Sundays in March. We're going to do something different. Together, we are going to consider the church its nature, and in specifically, your relationship to her. You might remember this past fall, if you were with us, we, 
We did a short series on the church, the purpose of the church, and the culture of the church. We took some time to consider the cosmic purpose God has for the church, that through the church, a display of the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the powers and principalities, to the neighborhoods and the nations of this earth, that we would be in God's hands, this cosmic show and tell that would display something of his magnitude and his glory to a watching world. And we took our time, having considered that, working through Romans chapter 12, being confronted by the portrait of a true gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded culture, considering together what, what it might be if God was to take us down that road and work by his power in us a culture like that. So now, in the month of March, and in the underlying spirit of the Lenten season, of reflection, of confession, of repentance, of renewal as we look forward to Easter Sunday, we are going to return to consider the church and use this season of reflection to consider our relationship to her. So as we get started, let's just try to at least give words to some of the unspoken things that are out there when I say we're going to talk about the church. I think as I considered how do I capture some of these things best and not sound too bitter, jaded, or sarcastic, I, I remembered a, a comic strip. Some of you might be fans of Doonesbury. Uh, a friend sent me a comic strip a few years ago that I think captures what many may feel but are a little too afraid to actually say. It's going to come up on the screen. You probably can't read it, so I'll read it to you. We'll pick it up here in the second line. Alex, honey, mom and I have been talking, and we've decided it's time for us to start attending church as a family. Church? Church is boring. Well, we thought you might say that. All kids think that. Well, didn't you think church was boring when you were a kid? Well, sure. I hated going to church, but church was good for me, so my parents made me stick it out. You may end up hating church, too. But you have to come by that feeling honestly. You have to put in the pew time like mom and I did. Oh, what if I like it? Like it? What do you mean? And then as it ends, mom says, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, honey. In other words, there's, there's no possible way that you could find yourself actually liking this thing that you think about when you hear the word church. So that doesn't kind of capture some of the unspoken sentiment that might be sitting in the room this morning. Let me read you something from the opening of a little book called What is a Healthy Church? We love this book. We use it all the time. But the beginning of this book might best capture maybe some of the unspoken sentiment of where you are, and we'll just see if it helps. It starts this way. The ideal church is a place with or where dot, 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 fill in your own blank. And he goes on to try to capture some sentiment. There's beautiful music, music that shows training and practice. You don't want guitars and drums. You want a choir and violin players. Why? Beautiful music glorifies God. Or maybe you do want guitars and drums, something contemporary and up to date because that's what people listen to on the radio, so meet them where they are. But maybe the music is not as important to you as the preaching. You want a church where the sermons are good, meaningful but not heavy-handed, biblical but not boring, 
Practical, but not picky and legalistic. Of course, the kind of man the preacher is plays into what his sermons are like. And there are all kinds of preachers out there. There are the intense ones who never smile, the funny ones with a million stories, the family counselors who have always been there in every sermon. Yes, I'm just caricaturing, but most of us do have some expectations of what a pastor should be like, don't we? Or perhaps you're looking for a church where the people are all the same place in life as you are. You can connect with them. They understand what you're going through because they've gone through the same. They're just out of college like you. They have young children like you. They're nearing retirement like you. They know what it's like to shop at thrift stores like you or designer boutiques like you. They're from the inner city like you or maybe the country, wherever it is you are. Then again, maybe the most important thing for you about a church is whether or not there are opportunities to get involved, places to serve, places to do good. Is the church big on evangelism? Is it big on missions? Is it big on helping the poor? Does it provide opportunities for you and your son to meet with other fathers and sons? What about opportunities for you to help out in the children's ministry? Does it have programs that will even hold the attention of your children? I expect that some people are looking for a church, though, that is also alive to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who guides us. So you want a church where people are quick to listen to his voice, quick to watch for his work, quick to believe the remarkable things he can do. You're tired of being around spirit quenchers and tradition lovers. The Spirit's doing new things. He's given us new songs. Or maybe you're just looking for a church that feels a certain way. Not that you would ever dare put it like that. But if you're used to a church that feels kind of like a mall or an old chapel or a coffee house, it makes sense that your ideal church feels the same way. That's to be expected. Didn't many of us, when we moved away from our parents' home, occasionally find ourselves nostalgic for certain sights and smells or sounds of the way that mom and dad did certain things? A lot of these things can be good, or at least neutral. Really, this is how this beginning ends. Really, I just want you to start thinking about what you value most when you think about the church. It's a fantastic question. This morning, as we just kind of set up our time through the month of March, considering the nature of the church and your place and relationship to the church, understanding what you value in the church, most specifically, though, in relation to what God values, is going to be of utmost importance. Considering the church, even in this season, is more appropriate than you might realize at first blush. The Lenten season these days is often called the church's journey to the cross. It's preparation for an Easter celebration. When you think about it, one of the most significant ramifications of Jesus' death and resurrection is indeed the establishment of the church. There was a day when the Apostle Paul was having to leave a church he dearly loved in Ephesus. As he stood on the edge of the docks ready to board a ship to leave, the elders, the leaders of the church were there with him. No doubt there had been a lot of tears. There had been a lot of embraces. There had been a lot of communication back and forth as he prepares to board the ship to leave them, not to see them again. These people that he loved, he turns, he looks at the elders, and he says, be shepherds of the church of God. And then he says this, Just give you perspective on who you are and what you do. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. As you and I consider 
the simple question of the things that we value or think about when we consider the church. We, we have to at least be fair and start by beginning to sense the value that God places on the church. And when we consider Paul's parting words to these people that he loved so much, there are a few big realities that you and I have to at least come to terms with and be aware of as we consider any period of time in thinking about the church. The first thing that we have to be aware of and acknowledge is that the church is first and foremost God's plan. It is not man's idea. If God had not from eternity passed purpose to have a people that were his very own, distinct from every other community on the earth, the church would not exist. If God had not purposed the church, the church would not exist. If you listen to many of the undertones and conversations that happen these days about the church, you you may well come to think that at some point the establishment of the church was similar to the establishment of a neighborhood civic club or rotary club. People got together who had similar interests and similar likes and similar dispositions and decided, hey, let's formalize this thing. Let's formalize what we're doing. That's not how the church came to be. In fact, this morning, let's just stick with Paul and his relationship to this church in Ephesus. If you got your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just consider a few of these big realities that set the trajectory, really, for what we're going to do this, this March. The church is God's plan. It's not man's idea. Let's pick up Paul's letter to this church in chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to splash around in chapter 2 all morning, but we're going to start in chapter 11. Paul says, therefore, remember, something you need to remember about yourself, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's talking to Gentiles now who have become followers of Jesus, who comprise the bulk of this church in Ephesus. You were not born into the Jewish home. You were not born into the Jewish people. You were not born into the people of the circumcision. You were separated from the promises of God, right? Verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God's purpose for all of eternity has found fulfillment through the death and resurrection of Jesus as he establishes what Paul is going to talk to them about. He has established in Jesus one new man. He's established in Jesus the church. Look at verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has established in his son a people, a community that is no longer distinguishable by ethnic origin. You realize that? The church is distinguished, is identifiable by the grace of God upon it. This has been God's purpose and God's eternal plan and God's initiative throughout time. The church is his idea. It is his plan. And if the church is God's eternal plan, if the church is part of God's eternal purpose, if the church is purchased by the blood of his own son, then you have to begin to intuit and imply that God has a particular value that he places upon the church. And if you and I are going to be fair in considering what God's word says about the church and our relationship to her, we're going to have to begin to understand and sense some of the value that God has for the church. The church is his idea. It's his plan. It, It wasn't ours. It wasn't man's creation. But secondly, you hear it in Paul's words to these elders in Ephesus, and you hear it in the letter he writes to the church, The church is a people. It's not a place or a thing. The church, which he charged those elders to shepherd, was a people bought the price of the blood of God's Son. This might be the most most common misunderstanding when we talk about the church. Essentially, the church is a people, it's not a building. It's not a service provider. It's not a philosophical ideal. It's a people. Again, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul says again, you have to remember something. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You were spiritually dead. In you, there was a time before the grace of God in Christ collided with your soul that there was no legitimate spiritual life at work in your heart. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, remember, you were in a situation in your sin so great that there is zero, none, no applicable human agency that could ever get you out of your situation. See, all the, all the hype and all the focus today on trying to determine who the person is you want to be and who you're supposed to be and then figuring out the path to dig deep into your heart to find the stones to step on to get to your better self finding yourself to improve yourself, becoming your best self through figuring those things out, all those stepping stones the world holds out to you are nothing but stumbling blocks in the gospel. There is no human agency that you have that can give your heart spiritual life to become the person that God makes you to be in his son. You can't do it. To be made spiritually alive, something from outside of you has to happen. You don't have an agency to dig deep enough into your heart to find some kind of divine spark that is going to give light to the new you. 
Something has to happen to you. Paul says, consider what you were. Consider the reality of where you were. Then consider what Jesus did. He shed his blood, without which there is no forgiveness of sins. If there was any human agency that you could have at all that could produce in you the spiritual life you so desperately need, it means the cross is an utter farce. It means the life of Jesus lived in your place of perfect delight and obedience to the Father and the death he died on the cross suffering what we deserve for our sin is foolishness. If there's any element of human agency in you that can produce in your heart the spiritual life that is necessary to be made right with God. Which is why Paul goes on to say, but God in verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. This is the cosmic show and tell to come. In eternity, God is going to say, there she is. Look at her. Do you know what she once was? And there we are together in eternity with him. She's beautiful. There she is. You remember the woman at the well? There he is. There's Zacchaeus. There's Matthew, the tax collector. There's you. There's me. Look, there she is. Do you know what she once was? Look at her now. It's not because you and I managed to turn over the right leaf. Paul says no in verse eight, it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. We're his artistry. That's what the word means. It's interchangeable in Paul's day for artistry, a work of art, most often used in in poetry and writing, but it could be any artwork. We are his artistry. We are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Paul is reminding them that the grace of God has invaded their life and made them a new person and placed them in a new people. They have become, by the grace of God, one new man, a people of God's possession, purchased by the blood of his son. That's the church. A people called by God's grace through faith in Jesus. It's not a building. It's not essentially a spiritual services provider. It's not essentially a philosophical ideal. It is those who by faith have taken a hold of God's saving work in Jesus. Some fundamental things we have to understand as we consider the nature of the church and our relationship to her is that the church is first and foremost God's eternal plan. And it is the blood-bought people of God. That's why later on when Paul continues this letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter five. He is going to say that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't die for a building. He didn't die for a social club. 
He didn't die for a service provider. He died for a people. But that understanding that the church is God's idea, and it is first and foremost essentially a people, begs some clarification for you and I if we're going to spend some time considering the nature of the church and our relationship to her. So the first clarification is this. All of the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation purchased by the blood of Jesus, adopted into his family by grace through faith, redeemed from the kingdom of darkness, transferred in the kingdom of light, all who have been and will be saved by Jesus, make up what is known as the invisible or the universal church. All of the people who have been and will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus comprise this people that Jesus has died for, the church, which is also referred to as the universal or invisible church. So when Paul writes to the same church in Ephesians chapter one, and Paul says that God, having raised Christ from the dead above all rule and authority, puts all things under Jesus' feet, making him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, There is only one body, essentially, that Jesus is the head of. This is the universal, the invisible church. This particular body of believers who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, to this point, has never assembled for a worship service. But they will one day. This is the promise of eternity. The universal or the invisible church is the church as God sees it, as it will appear in eternity. It is this church that Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against. It is those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have been and who will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. However, as you read your Bibles, and you come across the word church in the New Testament, the vast majority of the times you come across that word in the New Testament are talking about what is often called the visible church or the local church or the particular church. For example, and I'll just give you some in Acts 11. Luke refers to the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 1 refers to the church of God, which is at Corinth. 1 Thessalonians is addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians 16.9 speaks of the churches of Asia sending greetings to Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house. Colossians 4, Paul sends greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul's letter to Philemon is addressed to the church in your house. The particular, the local, the visible church is, those, is comprised of those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and have gathered together in a particular locale. It is this aspect of the church that we're going to spend our time in March considering together. And as we do again, we do with a measure of honesty up front. The idea of the local church and even just the word church. Most people think of the local church when they hear that. The, the word conjures up all sorts of things in people's minds. I mean, in the fall when we did this series, we we named it the dearest place on earth, which is why we named this one dearest place part two. And we took that from Charles Spurgeon who talked about the church being the dearest place on earth, not because it's perfect. I mean, it's got all kinds of warts, chiefly because sinners like Spurgeon and myself are there. 
For many people, thinking about the church is, it's like thinking of the, the color of the, the pew cushions, right? If we were to ever change them, hopefully we would change them to be prettier. Maybe a little softer, a little more inviting, but ultimately, if you think about it, it's not that important. For a lot of people, taking time to think about the church feels about the same way. And given the pressures that you live in, the debt that many of you have, the craziness of some of your homes, the pressures at your job, you come in here and the last thing you think you want to think about or consider is the nature or the value of the church and your relationship to her. There's got to be something more important. But honestly, nothing could be further from the truth. And it starts with coming to the realization that the church is of utmost importance to God. She's his cherished possession. And therefore, as his people, it ought to be important to us. John Stott, the great British churchman, he said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. It is indeed the most visible part of Christian theology. The foundation of the church is Jesus's atoning work. His work continues through the church. He purchased the church with his blood. He identifies himself with it. It is his body, the dwelling place of his spirit, the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. God God intends for the church to be his plan A in bringing the gospel to the nations and to a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. So what we're going to have to consider in the weeks to come is starting with considering the value of the church to God is what importance does a church have in my life? Jan Hus was a 15th century reformer. and He said that every earthly pilgrim ought to faithfully love Jesus Christ, the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, his bride. What importance does the church have in my life? Our hope is that over the next few weeks, you'll be better able to answer that question as we consider the nature of the church in God's word. But to start, as we begin to separate the understanding of the universal, invisible church and the local, particular, visible church, we we need to come up with a biblical understanding of what the local church actually is, right? So I'm gonna give you some definitions that have been put forward of of how we understand the nature of the local church as we see it laid out in the Bible. And I want you to hear these definitions that are being offered. And I want you to hear, if if you hear some themes that are consistent throughout them, because there are some themes that are in these definitions that are gonna make up what we're gonna talk about in the weeks to come, and I'll explain them to you. But I just want you to hear the definitions, all right? And they're gonna come up on the screen. First one. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in the world. It's a good definition. Now, some of these are going to be more wordy than others, and that's what happens when pastors write things. Another one says a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Christ Jesus and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. It's a good one, but you can already see some similarities in things they're mentioning. The next one, a little bit, a little wordier here. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, 
observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. It's a pretty good one too, right? I'll give you a break. The next one won't be so wordy. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus, to be exhorted from the word of God, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Do you hear some themes that are similar in all these different definitions? They're touching on some things that seem to be essential to the nature of what makes up a local church. I'll give you one more, and I guess this is the wordiest, all right? This is the, this is the most. This one isn't okay with just phrases. He's got to define everything, right? Here you go. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Local churches are led by pastors and served by deacons, possess and pursue purity and unity, exercise discipline, develop strong connections with other churches, and celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for ministry, these communities regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim his word, engage non-Christians with the gospel, disciple their members, and care for people through prayer and giving and stand both for and against the world. A little more comprehensive, he kind of fleshes out some other things, but do you hear the similarities? Some essential things as people are trying to understand what the Bible points out to be the nature of a local church. And there are a lot of other attempts at defining these things, but let's just look at some of the themes that run through them because that's what we're going to focus on in the coming weeks, and I want you to know what's coming. The first theme you can hear in all of these definitions is that there is some manner of family connection. There's a family connection of the people that God has purchased through his son. The people of the local church, they, they give evidence that they are indeed believers. The local church is to be comprised of those who by grace through faith have believed upon Jesus and been adopted into his family. And so when we talk about what makes the local church, we talk about being members of the family of God, members of the body of which Jesus is the head. Membership in a local church is an essential part of God's design for his people. It's the place where the gifts that God has given us are able to be most easily used for his glory and the good and joy of those around us. And we're going to take a week to spend time talking about what the Bible has to say about this and consider our relationship to it. But it's not just a, a family connection that makes the local church. There's a family identification as well. Baptism and communion are, are given to us by God for the purpose of identifying us as his own and proclaiming our ongoing confidence in his faithfulness. You heard it in some way in all of those definitions. Now for a lot of us, ne neglecting baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper, it, it might seem in the large scale of things fairly inconsequential at first, but better understanding why God has gifted his church with these ordinances will help us better understand why that a people that neglect them will bleed to death through an amputation, as one pastor said. We're going to look at them both, their God-appointed role in the life of the church and and give you a better not only understanding, but opportunity to reflect on your relationship to them as well. So there's a family connection and a family identification, but then essential to the life of a local church is a family gathering. A regular gathering is essential to what a local church is. A local church that does not regularly gather isn't really a church. 
And when we gather, what we do is of importance to God and of importance to us. Chiefly, we gather to worship. That's what we call it. And when we gather to worship, a central reality of our time together is through the preaching of God's word, being encouraged, being exhorted, being directed, being reminded of God's grace and faithfulness to us. It's his word that caused us to be born again. It's his word that Jesus says we are preserved by and live by. The regular gathering of God's people is essential. And so we're going to spend time talking about why you're actually here. What purpose God has for the gathering of his people like this? What purpose setting aside time to read and teach from his word has? The songs we sing, the things we do. Why do we do it? What role does it have? And what's your relationship to it? Apart from that, you heard it in all the definitions. There is a family leadership to the church. As you watch local churches in the New Testament become established, you see Paul appointing elders in all the churches to give spiritual oversight to the gathered believers. And those elders and those believers then appoint deacons who lead the church in serving and meeting the needs of the church. And, and God has laid out in his word particular character and competency qualifications that are outlined for the people that he has given the church to do these very things. In these letters and in God's word and talking about these things, he also lays out expectations that members of the local church are to have the leaders that God gives them and then expectations the leaders are to have of the members of the local church. Oftentimes we forget that pastors and, and deacons and those who lead in the local church are also members. I'm a member here. So every expectation and commitment that, that you make in your covenant as you are a member of this church, I make individually as well as a believer. One of those things that we covenant to and we can expect from each other and we encourage of each other is the willingness to pray for one another, as simple as it may sound. And this morning, I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that very thing in a very specific way. And as I give us an opportunity to pray for one another as members of a body for a specific reason, I'm also giving us this opportunity because I want you to hear what it looks like when God gifts the church with particular quality of leaders. You guys know, you've been here for a little while, the pastor who leads you so faithfully, Shelby Murphy, has not been feeling well. And this past week, we got a little clarity on what was going on. And with Shelby's permission, I'm going to read to you a letter that he put together for some of us. Now, I had to get his permission because Shelby doesn't want what he's going through to in any way overshadow what many of you are going through in your lives. And that's just the quality of the man that God's given to serve and lead this congregation. But I want you to hear this because he's going to give us an opportunity as a body, a family, to do the very thing we've promised to do, which is pray. This is the, the letter that he sent to some of us and has agreed to let me read it. I'm going to do my best. He said, things have moved fast and furiously for me the last two weeks. I was able to get a biopsy done last Friday morning at Johnston Willis, and I got the results back two days ago. T-cell lymphoma, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. My pulmonologist quickly got me referred to the Massey Cancer Center at MCV, and I met with the oncologist immediately. This was Friday. After meeting with him, I was admitted to the hospital, which is where I am now. I'll be here for the next seven-ish days. 
while they run some additional tests. They will then start me on my first round of treatment, which will be a mix of chemo and steroids tailored to my specific type of leukemia. Treatments will last six to 12 months, one week on, three weeks off. Doctors say it's highly treatable and highly curable. And the goal is to get it into remission quickly, then do maintenance treatment. And while curing it is possible with the current treatment, he reiterated the only real way to cure it 100% would be through a bone marrow transplant. But discussions about that will come once it's in remission. And here he is going to serve us by leading us in how we can together as a family pray for not only him, but Carrie and the boys. Carrie will basically be a single parent for the foreseeable future while I'm doing these stretches in the hospital. Simple texts and encouragements for her will be well received. Uh, if you wanted to do anything uh, meal-wise, there are gift cards that he's kind of laid out, and we will give you more information on that. We'll, we'll get you more specifics. This has all happened very quickly. Um, but in addition to getting the boys to where they need to be, she'll be up here with me as much as possible. Gas, cars is going to be a challenge. I also know already there are a few ladies organizing some times to come and clean the house. That's going to be of an imperative once I'm released from the hospital. And what a picture already within less than a day and a half of this already being done for him. Um, pray that this would not drive Carrie into solitude, but would deepen her relationship with others. She has a good support system around her now, but I pray that this would strengthen those relationships as well as expand them. As hard as it may seem now, pray that she would see that this is a gift and not a curse. Jesus has taken the curse of our condemnation and the curse of our diseases. This means that cancer is not punitive, but it's a sanctifying pathway to heaven. Pray that she would know and believe that God is not withholding any good in this situation, but doing good. That he is a sun and a shield. That he bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And as you do, you can pray for me. Continue to pray for complete and miraculous healing, which would ultimately bring God glory and confirm why this cancer even exists in the first place. Yes, pray for the doctors and the nurses around me. Pray for clear insight and wisdom on their part when it comes to my treatment and my care. But what I've thought about a lot lately as I've been a human pincushion and had bone marrow pulled out of my hip bone, one day he can tell that story and you can laugh like his boys did. I've been thinking about a variation on the John Piper maxim, don't waste your life. I don't want to waste my cancer. While myself and others have prayed for complete healing, I also want to be mindful that healing may not be his plan for me in this life. I don't want to waste it. The pain I feel right now assures me that something wonderful is waiting for me. This light and momentary affliction, it is indeed preparing for me an eternal glory, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Pray that this would deepen my love for Jesus. Cancer ultimately wins if this doesn't cause me to feast more and more on the sufficiency of Jesus throughout all of the hardship. Pray that I wouldn't let cancer rob me of the sense of God's sovereignty in this whole thing. I want my comfort to solely come from him throughout all of this, not the percentages doctors throw at me. I need to be reminded that one of the aims of God in my cancer is to continue to burn away any self-reliance in my heart so that I rely completely and utterly on him for my very literal next breath. Pray that I wouldn't waste this cancer by spending too much time reading about cancer and little time reading about God. While I understand that ignorance isn't a virtue when it comes to this, 
The allure for me as of late is to know more and more about it, while the zeal to know more and more about God has waned. The Bible calls this unbelief, and I need help guarding my mind from wandering down these paths. Pray that I would actually partner with this cancer to destroy any appetite for sin in my life. Pride, false humility, impatience. I don't want to waste the power of this cancer to help destroy these foes in my heart. Finally, and most importantly, pray that I would use this cancer as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Jesus. I'm not in the critical care unit of MCV by some divine accident. As Luke 21 says, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness to me. This is an opportunity for me to bear witness to Jesus. He is infinitely worthy. And I pray that I would show that he is worth more to me than my life. I don't want to waste this opportunity. So I pray tonight for you that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. I love you, Shelby. So that is a picture of the quality of character that God outlines for those that he gives to lead his family as a shepherd and an overseer. And so we're going to follow his lead, and we're going to take a moment to pray for him together as a family in the way, in the manner that he's asked. So let me lead us in that, and then we'll, we'll jump back and, and finish up this morning. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are asking this morning together as a family for you to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever dream. May your love and your sheltering arms be a tangible and ever-present reality for Carrie and the boys. May this journey produce new depths of love for you and the people that you have placed in their lives. Lord, may they as a family and we as a family all have your perspective on this time. May it be your voice that we listen to and your voice that we seek. Lord, we ask that you would deepen Shelby and the family and the church's love for you that you would solidify his confidence in your good sovereignty. Lord, it is your goodness and your power that allows us to ask you with boldness and confidence to eradicate this cancer in his body for your glory. We join Shelby this morning in praying that he would actually partner with this cancer to destroy any appetite for sin in his life. As he's asked, he doesn't want to waste the power to destroy the foes in his heart. And as he has said, we say with him, finally and most importantly, we pray that he would use this cancer as a means of witness to the truth and glory of your son. We know as he knows that he's not in the critical care unit by some divine accident. We know and we celebrate with him, you, Jesus, and you alone are infinitely worthy. And so we pray as he has led us to pray that he would show that you are worth more to him than life, that the real Jesus would be seen in those that would come to love and to serve him and the family.
Lord, we ask and we plead that you would do all of this in immeasurably more. In Jesus' good name, amen. Lastly, as he purchases for himself a family that he gathers together in a place like this and identifies and shepherds through those that he calls out, he, he gives this family a mission. This is the last thing we're going to come to spend our time on this month. Just as Peter reminded the church that God has purchased us by his grace through his son so that we would proclaim his praises the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has given his family a purpose and a mission that his infinite wisdom would be displayed, that people would see that Jesus is indeed real through the lives and the words of his people. The church is essentially a people purchased by the blood of Jesus that long for God to be glorified in their neighborhoods and in the nations. And the way that the good news is proclaimed is through both our words and our lives. We are a people zealous to live out the great commandment to love our neighbors as we have been loved by Christ and the great commission to go and to make disciples of those in the name of Jesus. Serving Jesus in this world doesn't just mean proclaiming the gospel with words. It means living according to the gospel that we proclaim. And God has called his family to this. Just as he purposed in eternity to have a people for himself at the price of his son, he has purposed that people to do good works through which he would be made known. We're going to consider this purpose that God has, this plan and mission that he has for his people and allow you time to consider your life in relationship to it. Friends, the church is... God's plan A for the world. And as you and I spend time remembering that the church is God's plan, that it's his people purchased by his son's blood, it is going to help you and I keep what is most important in front of our eyes. I'll be completely honest with you this morning. I'm just as tempted as everyone else in this room to think that something other than what God says is most essential to the nature of the church. I am just as tempted as everyone else to think that things like music and program offerings and all of those things are meant to dictate how I feel about the church. For all the things that you see and you go, man, that's just a glaring weakness. I want you to know I see more, more of them. All of the warts, especially as they all find their attachment points at some point to me. And there are days, and I will not lie to you, when I wake up on a Monday morning and I wish I was doing something else. Do you know what I wish I was doing? Do you know what I want to do if I wasn't doing this? I want to be a high school strength coach. That's my, that's my daydream job, working in a high school in a weight room. I see all the things, all the flaws, all the warts, all the things that my heart sometimes wants to dictate, determine the value and the nature of the church and there are times that I, I want to run. And when those times come, I have been lovingly confronted by the work of God's Holy Spirit in my heart. And I hear this question. What does it say about my love for Jesus and my love for his people? If I would choose to leave and abandon it because of this thing. 
understanding again the value that God has for his church, that it's his eternal plan, that it's his people purchased by the blood of his son. It's a people first before it's ever a place, before it's ever a program, before it's ever a provider, keeping what is essential the nature of the church and the value God has for it helps to keep in front of my mind and our mind what's most essential as we consider our lives. It is a people growing in the grace of God that we're given the privilege to love and to serve, to be patient with, and to invest in just as we would our own families. So as we prepare this morning to take some time to respond to God and to respond to his word, I'm going to pray for us as we consider what it is underneath at the bottom of it all that we should want for the church, the family that God has put us in. I hope it's nothing different than what you want for your biological family, and that's just health. A healthy church is a church that's increasingly reflecting God's character as his character has been revealed in his word. And so this morning, as we get ready to respond, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask that you pray this way for yourself, for this church, through this season. And I'll lead us in a time of this, and then we'll give you a couple of minutes as I finish praying to reflect. And then for those who have indeed believed upon Jesus by grace through faith, who have received him as King and Savior, you'll be invited to come and to remember his body broken, his blood shed as you do it, proclaiming your confidence in his infinite faithfulness and power and good to deliver on all of his promises to his people. And we'll sing and we'll celebrate. So let me lead us into reflection as we pray for who God is making us to be. Father, we ask this morning that by your power and the work of your Holy Spirit, you would make us to be a people that display the character and likeness of our Father in heaven. Or make us peacemakers, just as you have made peace with us through your Son. Make us those that would, that would love others who would be against us as you loved us while we were still rebelling against you. Make us to love one another and to pursue the oneness that you have given us by grace just as you, Father, are one. Make us, Father, fishers of men just as you sent your Son. Send us as your people. Let us as a people bear the family likeness like father, like son, like sons and daughters. You, Jesus, loved the church and gave yourself up for her. We ask that you would make it be the dearest place, better yet, the dearest people for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at redemptionhill.com.